If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 1212. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this November 4th, 2018. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. That's where you can get all of my latest uh, columns. And I've written many since the last time we had a chance to do a podcast. We're uh, limiting our podcasts uh, as much as possible because we're trying to conserve our meager resources to make sure this goes as long as it possibly can. Uh, at the very least, uh, till the end of the year and, and uh, presumably through the end of the Robert Mueller investigation and clearly through the big midterm election, which is why we're doing one today, which, of course, is on Tuesday. I hope you um, had a good Halloween. We had a very good one at the uh, Ziegler household uh, with uh, Grace Ziegler being a I believe her official uh, costume was that of a unicorn princess fairy ballerina. Yeah. It's costing money. And uh, her little sister, Diana, was just a unicorn. So they were kind of matching, uh, cute as hell. Um, Grace is beyond spoiled. Her Halloween included a trip to uh, Disneyland to celebrate her mom's birthday and also for her to see uh, Jack and Sally from The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is her all-time uh, favorite movie. Uh, then, of course, um, there was... Well, before there was Halloween, I took her to go to see the Hollywood showing at the El Capitan Theater of Nightmare Before Christmas for the 25th anniversary of the film. And I dressed up as Jack the Pumpkin King and she dressed up as Sally. And then, of course, there was um, Halloween itself, where we made a trip to Glendale, California to uh, see her grandparents and stay overnight there because she didn't have school the next day. So whether she realizes or not, it's going to be the greatest Halloween she's ever had. And her basic reaction to the whole thing was, yeah, that was nice. What's next? So uh, that's pretty much the the essence of uh, being six years old in 2018 and how difficult it is to uh, create excitement anymore when you have a spoiled kid like that. But I also hope you uh, survived the time change okay. Uh by the way, speaking of the fact that it's Halloween and uh, daylight savings and all this, this is, I guess, as close as we're going to get to the fourth anniversary of, I guess, what you would call some sort of John Ziegler show in this incarnation of it. It was four years ago 
that we began just before the 2014 midterm election, the now uh, defunct Sunday night uh, radio show that was the John and Leah show, which, of course, ended in disaster after Trump won the presidency and Lee and I had a massive falling out, which was, uh, I guess, mostly, although not totally related to that, uh, her being a massive uh, Trumper and uh, me not. And, uh, boy, almost nothing has changed in four years. <laughs> the whole world has changed in the last four years uh, since we started doing this, mostly on Sundays. The uh, podcast, of course, uh, this year has uh, had a little bit more difficulties because of logistical issues, but we're still basically doing them on Sundays, uh, one or about twice a month at this point. And we've not had a chance to do one since the beginning of the month. And boy, has a lot transpired since that time. I will get to as much as I can to review the last several weeks. But let's start with the fact that we have this huge midterm election on Tuesday. And I do believe that it is a, the biggest midterm election of my life, maybe the history of the country. I discussed this in great detail in hour number two with our fantastic guest, Joe Walsh, the former Republican congressman who is now a Salem radio host and a Newsmax a TV host. So make sure you check out hour number two for extensive analysis of what you think is what we think is going to happen on uh, Tuesday, at least from Joe's perspective. But from, from my standpoint, is that I actually agree with the conventional wisdom, which always makes me very nervous. I, it almost gives me hives. Whenever I'm agreeing with the conventional wisdom, which is almost always wrong, especially in this day and age, I, I get the heebie-jeebies. And the conventional wisdom right now is that Democrats are going to take the House, and Republicans will hold and maybe even expand slightly their majority in the Senate. And what makes me particularly nervous is not just that I'm uh, agreeing with the conventional wisdom. It's that that's what I'm rooting for. Now, as a lifelong conservative uh, who has never voted for a, a Democrat at a, for a federal position that I can recall, I'm almost positive this is the case, uh, this is... Um, very difficult for me to acknowledge that I'm rooting for Democrats to win the House of Representatives and that I will be casting a vote, not that it matters, although I am in a competitive congressional district here in Southern California, uh, for a Democrat. Uh, the reason why that is, <clears throat> is because I believe that we're in a situation that demands some semblance of oversight of this president. And whether that means potential impeachment or it just means hearings or it just means having some semblance of accountability, whatever it is, I, I don't believe that a Republican Congress is worth the cost for the next two years. And let's be clear. I don't even think this is that close a call because look at what the Republican Congress has achieved over the last two years. Basically nothing. I mean... That's that's effectively what's happened. I mean, yeah, we got the the tax cuts out of the house, unpaid for, real conservative, massive spending and huge increases in the debt. That's with a Republican Congress. So, what exactly is the downside to having a Democratic Congress, especially if you hold the Senate in in Republican hands, which is what I'm rooting for? I don't see it. 
I see far more positives, which is that now Trump can't do whatever the heck he wants. We'll find out a lot more about what actually has transpired over the last two years. The possibility of impeachment is there if Robert Mueller comes back with the the facts and the evidence to to, uh, substantiate it. I wrote a column about this uh, for media, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, which further details why it is that I'm in the position of rooting for the very odd position, but we're living in incredibly strange times, the the very uh, peculiar situation of rooting for a Democratic House and a Republican Senate, which, again, the conventional wisdom says is going to happen, which makes me very nervous. Now, the the evidence that this is going to occur is pretty darn strong. Uh, I spoke uh, via text with my good friend, Democratic Congressman John Yarmuth, who is of increasing confidence that the Democrats are going to take the House, uh, that uh, it would be almost impossible, based upon his assessment of things, for Republicans to maintain control. But that doesn't mean that Democrats are going to win a huge majority. Joe Walsh, in hour number two, seems to be in almost exactly the same boat, which is that based upon his conversations with his former Republican colleagues, there's almost no chance of Republicans maintaining control in the House and that Trump has effectively washed his hands of it because Trump is all about Trump and he doesn't want to take any blame for it. I do believe that um, there is a scenario where Democrats barely take the House which would actually be the worst possible, and Joe Walsh agrees with me in this, uh, on this in hour number two, the worst possible scenario for Democrats and maybe even for the country. Because under that scenario, Trump may actually be in better shape with Democrats barely taking the House by, say, two or three votes than if Republicans maintain control. Because from a policy standpoint, you'd have exactly the same situation, but From a perception perspective, Democrats would have some semblance of power, but they would not be able to do anything with it. And there would be a massive fight over who would be the next Speaker of the House. They would not be able to impeach Trump, barring some massive earthquake, because they wouldn't have enough votes to do it, because you'd have a couple of people who who had just been elected from red districts that would be afraid to do so. Uh, And so impeachment would be nearly impossible unless... Mueller just came up with uh, O.J. Simpson-like evidence, which I guess is theoretically possible, but I'm not in that camp that that's likely to occur. So that scenario, I think, is theoretically possible. Uh, but the more likely scenario is something along the lines of my official prediction, which and I have not gone through all of these districts one by one because I don't think there's enough reliable polling data to do so. This is more on my gut instinct. And my gut instinct is that the Democrats are going to take the House with probably a total of about 222 votes, which would give them a a margin enough where they're in control, uh, but they're not in dominant control. And maybe that's just what I'm rooting for. And I'm someone who usually thinks what I'm rooting for is the least likely scenario because that's just the way the life works, unfortunately, at least my life. But that's where I, where I see this going. And in the Senate, I think Republicans are almost for sure going to keep control. Although the Senate is much less 
predictable, which is weird because it's usually the opposite. But in this particular uh, year, there are so many close Senate races that if the wind blows hard in one direction or the other over the next couple of days, then it really could change things quite dramatically. But all things being equal, I think we're headed for about 53 seats in the Senate for Republicans. And it would be very difficult for Republicans to have less than 52 seats. And it would also be very difficult for Republicans to end up with more than 54 seats, if you're just looking at this from a statistical standpoint. Now, Trump will declare victory, but of course, that will be asinine, but it doesn't matter because he, he would be appealing to his base. I love the poorly educated. And his base won't understand that just because you went from, say, 51 Republican senators to 53 Republican senators, that that does not mean that Trump won. To the poorly educated, it might, because they think, oh, well, 53 is more than 51 because they're, you know, they're educated enough to understand that, I guess. But I love the poorly educated. But the reality is that this was a year that was set up for Republicans to dominate the Senate. The playing field literally could not be better for the for the Republicans in 2018 because senators are elected every six years. Obviously, six years ago was 2012, and that was the year Barack Obama was reelected. In the year Barack Obama got reelected, that was a very good year for Democrats. So obviously, six years later, you're going to have a situation where the, the possibilities for pickups are better on the Republican side. It also, it's, it's actually even better than that because many of the battleground uh, races on the Senate side are in red states. That doesn't mean that they have Republicans who are representing them in the Senate, like, for instance, Indiana and Missouri. Those are red states, won easily by Trump, but happen to have Democrats in the Senate right now, largely because of Obama's victory in 2012. They rode Obama's coattails. Uh, but the reason why that's important is because I think that really the red-blue thing is almost a cultural phenomenon now more than it is a political phenomenon. And what I mean by that is this. It's not that people in red states or blue states, although there's some of this, certainly here in California there is because it's the extreme, but by and large, it's not an adherence to one party or the other. It's much more of an urban-rural type of thing. It's much more of a philosophical underpinning about how you view life and in a red state, a more rural state, like a Indiana or a middle-of-the-country state, which Missouri is the consummate middle-of-the-country state, although there are obviously urban centers in Missouri, the, the reality is that, for instance, the Kavanaugh fight not only doesn't hurt Republicans for sticking by Brett Kavanaugh, it actually helps Republicans in those areas of the country. Because they look at it and say, well, this seems like a raw deal. And boy, Democrats really overplayed their hand. And I'm kind of afraid of where we're headed. 
I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I do think there's a lot of, of that that plays. That 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 narrative plays in the quote-unquote red states. And it certainly doesn't hurt the Republican candidate that, that Trump and the Republicans stood by Kavanaugh. In the blue states, it's a totally different story. It's me too. It's, oh my God, political correctness runs the world. And this is outrageous that you stood by this terrible white man who was raping women. I mean, that, that's the way they look at it. And so, but there aren't that many battlegrounds in blue states in the Senate. So it would be really difficult, not impossible, not impossible, but it would be very difficult for Democrats to take the Senate. It, it, here's how I would break it down is, is if, you know, in trying to determine what's going to happen. In the Senate, there's really the four seats to look at are, I've already referenced Indiana, Missouri, and then Arizona and Nevada. Because there you have two red states with Democrats incumbent, Indiana and Missouri. You got an open seat that was held by Republicans in Arizona. And you have a Republican-held seat in Nevada. And those are all four, you know, two Western states, two Midwestern states. That's a pretty good cross-sampling of what's going to happen. And if, if you look at just those four, if one party takes all four, then that's a huge night for them. And if Democrats take all four, which is theoretically possible, then there's a good chance they're going to take the Senate. But statistically, it's probably going to end up being a 2-2 or 3-1 split, in which case we're back to where I was talking about a 52-54 to Republican majority in the Senate in 2019. As far as the House is concerned, if there was one race that uh, I would pinpoint to look at, and it's not, a, it's not a great race as far as foreshadowing because it's going to be one of the last races called of the night because it's right here in Southern California. And that is the, the 48th District of California, which is Orange County. And that's Dana Rohrbacher. And uh, Dana Rohrbacher is a guy who I used to actually like. I think I had him on my radio show at least once at KFI in, in Los Angeles. Uh, but something has happened to him. He, he's gone Looney Tunes. He is not just a Trump tard. He is known as Vladimir Putin's congressman. In fact, there are people in congressmen who believe that he's being paid by Vladimir Putin. That's how bad it is. Uh, and he's been in Congress for like, uh, I don't know, almost 30 years. And uh, the Democrat is well-funded. And the, the district that he's in, is it's pretty unique because it's conservative, wealthy, highly educated, but it actually went for Hillary Clinton by two points in 2016. And so if Democrats cannot beat Dana Rohrbacher, I just don't see how we're heading towards any sort of a blue wave. I, I just don't see how that's possible. There are so many unique aspects to that race. Now, yes, Rohrbacher won big in 2016, but that was a presidential election year, uh, and the circumstances were very different for him specifically. And the Putin issue alone was non-existent, effectively, in 2016. And his opponent didn't have nearly the kind of money that his opponent has now in 2018. So if there was one race that I would look at and go, okay, this result is going to be a bellwether 
for the country, well, not necessarily for the country, but for whether or not there's going to be a massive Democratic wave, look at the 48th district in California. The New York Times is currently polling live. You can actually watch it live if you go to their website. It's hilarious. You can watch them live poll this district. And right now, last I checked it this morning, Rohrbacher is losing by three points and only has 44% of the vote. That does not bode well uh, for an incumbent Republican with his name recognition. Uh, if that poll is accurate, now granted, it's, it's, it's within the margin of error, but if that poll is accurate, then Rohrbacher is in big trouble. And if Rohrbacher is in big trouble, uh, Republicans are in big trouble uh, nationwide. If Rohrbacher ends up winning that district, then I don't see uh, any sort of massive blue wave, the, the likes of which would change the world. Now, granted, Democrats taking the House is going to be a big deal almost under any scenario. Again, I, 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 if it's two or three votes, uh, it'll still be perceived as a big deal, but it's actually going to backfire on Democrats. But if, if they take the House in any way, shape, or form, that's a big deal. Because that means oversight. That means the committee chairmen's change parties. Uh, it theoretically means impeachment is on the table, depending on what happens with Robert Mueller. It becomes almost impossible to get rid of Robert Mueller's investigation. So this is a big deal. And uh, again, I, I've argued in media that against everything I've ever done over my 40 years of caring about politics since I was a little kid, uh, I'm actually rooting for a Democratic House for the reasons that I've already articulated and which I wrote about uh, for media. Uh, as far as um, uh, what other people are saying, I've already referenced that my, my friend Congressman John Yarmouth from Louisville, Kentucky, a Democrat who uh, could very well be the chairman of the Budget Committee uh, come the, uh, January if Democrats take the, uh, the House. He's rather confident. Joe Walsh in hour number two seems rather confident that Democrats are going to take the House. I have a, a very good friend who's uh, bet me about uh, Trump being removed from office in 2019 who works for an extremely state-run pro-Trump media outlet who has been uh, trying to tell me for months that we are headed for a massive blue wave. And I have been consistently telling this person, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, and, and there's a, been a couple reasons why I've not been sure. Part of it is because I'm always hesitant, any, and, I, and this ha goes for almost anything I'm involved in, whether it's investigating a case uh, as to figure out what really happened uh, or whether it's a sporting event or whether it's a, a political prediction. Anything that I want to have happen, I'm very hesitant to actually believe is going to happen because I've been that snake bit by life, and it's just my, my pessimistic nature. But, all there, but there's actually a good to that because it, it battles confirmation bias. I'm the last person on the planet that's going to ever uh, be giving in to confirmation bias because I'm, I'm so aware of confirmation bias because I hate it when I see it uh, by people in the news media. And I, I think confirmation bias drives a whole lot of very false narratives, especially in the realm of, of alleged sex abuse. But... Uh, because I'm so against confirmation bias, I actually 
pr- probably end up in the other direction. Where if I want something to happen, you got to really prove it to me. There's got to be overwhelming evidence that it's real. There's by the way, part of this has impacted my view of the Robert Mueller investigation. Because I would love to see if if Trump has actually committed crimes, I would love to see him get his comeuppance, and there there be some justice finally to this guy. Uh, but I'm very hesitant to believe that. Again, partially because of the circumstances uh, of the investigation and what we know about it so far, but also in the big picture, partly because I know I have a confirmation bias in that regard. I would like to see that happen if, if it is justified by the facts and by the evidence. So uh, the people around me are more confident. I would say those three people who I, I would consider to be smart people in the know are, and, and from unique perspectives, I mean, two of them are, are hardcore conservatives, are all more more optimistic about, uh, or pessimistic, depending on your perspective, about Democrats taking the House and the potential of Democrats doing uh, better than expected in the Senate than I am. I will say this, though, and I get into this now hour number two with Joe Walsh, about there is one scenario or theory where I can still see a a huge win for Democrats on Tuesday, and that's this, that the mentality that I've just described with regard to the way I'm looking at this and being very, very hesitant to believe in the blue wave may be impacting pollsters. And what I know about pollsters, having worked briefly in the polling industry and having been a studier of polls for a very, 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 very long time, and knowing human nature and knowing the, the media the way that I do, I can totally see that this could, underline could be a factor here, where basically what is going on is that the estimates are more conservative, not politically conservative, but conservative from the standpoint of how aggressive these predictions are, that pollsters are being more conservative about their projections for a Democratic wave than they normally would be because, like me, they are snake bit by what happened in 2016 and that they don't want to have the same thing happen again. And I think that's possible. And uh, it sounded to me like Joe Walsh agreed that that is possible during our interview in hour number two. So it wouldn't stun me if it turns out that the so-called blue wave is more impressive than what I think that it currently is. But for the record, all things being equal, I'm going to stick with 222 seats in the House for Democrats and just cutting law of averages since I've put the margins at 52 or 54. Just for the heck of it, I'll go with 53 Republicans in the U.S. Senate. And, of course, Trump will take uh, credit for that, even though that will be absurd. Correct. Um, But that's what I I think is going to happen on Tuesday in these midterm elections. Uh, Now, interestingly, one of the things that might happen if Democrats take the House is that, depending on what Robert Mueller comes up with, we could see Donald Trump impeached. Now, it's important to point out, we're not referring to... Donald Trump's removal from office when we say impeachment. 
A lot of people don't understand. In fact, I'm not sure Trump understands the difference between impeachment and removal. I love the poorly educated. But the possibility exists, and I have been predicting this since very early on in his presidency. I've been predicting Democrats will take the House in 2018 and Democrats will impeach Trump in 2019. And that is very much currently on the table. But I, I had a very interesting uh, incident occur uh, a couple weeks ago where Ken Starr, the man who was the special counsel, special prosecutor against Bill Clinton, who led to Bill Clinton's impeachment but not removal because there was a sham trial in the Senate and Republicans weren't able to get anywhere near two-thirds of the majority that was necessary to remove him from office, that Ken Starr had written a book about the Clinton impeachment and had come here to Southern California to speak at the Reagan Library. And I went to go see Ken Starr. Now, Ken Starr is somebody who I, uh, I like. I think he's a bit naive. I interviewed him extensively. I think it was maybe the best interview that's ever been done with Ken Starr that no one ever really heard of the, outside of Los Angeles because it was done in studio on my old KFI radio show uh, here in Los Angeles. We, we actually drove him from Pepperdine University where he was the president of the school at the time, which we never did. We never did this in radio, but I so wanted to do this interview. We drove him. We had our, our uh, my one of my uh, assistant producers drive to Pepperdine, which is not easy to get to. It's up in Malibu, beautiful campus, by the way, if you ever get a chance to see it, and uh, drive him to uh, Burbank to our studios uh, in Los Angeles, and then drive him back. And I found Ken Starr to be a remarkably naive person, and and naive not just in the big picture of he doesn't really understand or fully grasp. Uh, you know, how bad human beings really are because <laughs> he's kind of in a bubble. Maybe he understands it now after he got screwed over at Baylor uh, because he got accused of uh, covering up for uh, sex abuse for football players, which is bullshit. But, um, but, but also naive, and I've, I have found this to be the case so often because I've done a number of interviews like this where I interview high-profile people well after the episodes that made them famous and invariably this is every single time i will ask them about things that are significant that they have no idea even happened because they are so in a bubble when you get in a firestorm you tend to just close things off sarah palin was a good example of this uh, the sandoskis are a perfect example of this where you have no idea, not no idea, but there's a lot, there's important things happening that you're not even aware of. And I found that to be the case with Ken Starr. So anyway, Ken Starr has written this book and I've, I, um, I'm concerned because I know that Ken Starr, once Mueller's investigation is completed, is going to be someone that the right-wing media, the conservative state-run media is going to turn to and go, okay, Mr. Starr, you said that uh, Bill Clinton should be impeached. Do you believe that Donald Trump should be impeached? And Starr is already making uh, what I perceive as indications that he's not going to be in favor of Trump's impeachment. And I wrote a, 
I, I, well, let me back up before I talk about the column. So he came to the Reagan library and, um, I wanted to interview him and I requested an interview with his publicist and the, and to be fair, star probably never even knew about the request because it was done through a, a second party through the Reagan library. And I, I got rejected for no apparent reason. I don't even know what there was no reason given for why they wouldn't do the interview other than maybe he was going to be very busy that night. Cause I know he does events before and after he speaks at the Reagan library. So I understand that part, but me being the stubborn guy that I am, I said, okay, well, I'm going to attend the event as a normal everyday average human being. And I'm going to try to ask a question. And during his speech, I uh, was not surprised that he made some statements that were rather pro-Trump with regard to impeachment. I was a little surprised and a bit taken aback by the fact that this very pro-Ronald Reagan crowd, I mean, this was a uh, all-white, I mean, all-white, uh, but older, clearly educated, well-dressed. These are Reagan loyalists in Simi Valley, California. This is not classic Colt 45 Trump territory. There are no red Make America Great Again hats, almost no blue jeans. This was this is a pretty classy crowd, but it was obvious from the way that they reacted to the things that Starr said about Trump that they might as well have been Colt 45 members. As pathetic as that is. Correct. I mean, these people clearly loved Trump and they wanted nothing to do with Robert Mueller's investigation or the potential impeachment of, of Trump, regardless of what the facts were. And I was, even I was taken aback. I'm like, really? Really? E even the Reagan people have been completely lost their minds here. So one of the things that Starr said, which kind of took me aback, was he implied strongly that Democrats should not impeach Trump because they won't have a supermajority in the Senate and therefore they can't get conviction. Now, putting aside for a second that that's a asinine way of looking at things because you should impeach based upon the facts and the evidence, not on whether or not you anticipate the, what the cowards in the Senate are going to do because they're afraid of going against uh, their own partisanship. And maybe that's what I should have asked him, but I, I realized I was going to have a very, very, very limited opportunity to ask him anything because, you know, all I'm doing is I'm grabbing the person with a microphone, waving them down and begging them to let me ask a question. And I knew at best I was going to be able to only ask two questions. But the, the main thing I was stunned by was the idea that, wait a minute, when you recommended that the Republican Congress impeach Bill Clinton, you knew there was no supermajority there either. So why were you recommending impeachment against Bill Clinton, but you seem to be against it for Donald Trump? So I decided at the last second to add a first question to what was my primary reason for being at the Reagan Library. My primary reason for being at the Reagan Library was to ask Ken Starr about what I perceived to be a hypocritical view and a narrow-minded view of Donald Trump's firing of James Comey, then FDI director, and why I believe that that's a potentially impeachable offense and why Starr has said that it's not. So here is some decent, though not great, audio, because I was recording it myself on my phone, not even sure if recording was being allowed, 
But here I am asking Ken Starr a two-part question about this subject at the Reagan Library a couple of weeks ago. I was a little startled by you seemingly indicating that because Republicans didn't have a supermajority back in the Clinton affair, that they apparently should not have impeached Bill Clinton. That's my first question, because that's what it sounds like you're saying, because there was no supermajority, that that would somehow block impeachment. And in relation to that, I would like you to compare. Can I, can I answer that sure. very briefly? Because I believe it's a factor counseling restraint because calls for impeachment without the most serious kinds of grounds. I think what the Clinton process tells us is the country intuitively does not like impeachment. So it's a, it's a factor that should be taken into account in the political process. No, no, I've never criticized the House of Representatives for its judgment. I respect that judgment greatly. I have said, including in the book, I wish there had been, in retrospect, a more robust debate with respect to a lesser sanction called a resolution of censure being pushed by, have you heard of Senator Dianne Feinstein? <laughs> and have you heard of Senator Joe Lieberman? But uh, there was a sense, of, and I understand this, I respect the view, that it's impeachment or nothing. Uh, I respectfully and strongly disagree with that view, that in the discretion of the House of Representatives, the House of Representatives could have said, we're going to have a resolution of censure, ditto for the Senate. I'm sorry, well, question two. Thank you, you make me feel much better about that. <laughs> um, but here's my real question. So I, I agreed with you back in 1998-99 that the conversation Bill Clinton had with Betty Curry the morning yeah. after uh, the Monica Lewinsky uh, testimony where he perjured himself and then he suborns her perjury in the White House the next day. I believe that was an impeachable offense. But I've heard you, and I could be wrong, please correct me if I am, I know you will. I, I've heard you've been somewhat dismissive of the conversation Donald Trump had with James Comey that I find to be far more egregious, where he says, you're gonna go easy uh, on Flynn, and I need your loyalty, and then he fires him. I wonder if you could compare those two episodes, the Betty Curry conversation, which you said was sure. impeachable, and the Comey situation. Because Betty, first of all, as a Clinton, was defined and ordered from Susan Weber Wright in a court of law. So let's, let's leave politics aside and the executive power law exercise of executive power. My view is, and you might disagree with this, uh, but it's a free country. Uh, <laughs> the president can fire Jim Comey for any reason he wants to. Period. Unless, unless there is a corrupt bargain, a, a, a payment of, of, of a bribe or something like that. But the president exercising power for his own self-interest his political self-interest and so forth is simply that which we consider in the in the polity and whether we think well of the president or think ill of the president, but it's not a crime. And I think that conversation is virtually ended in terms of somehow the firing of James Comey, his interest in bringing the Russian investigation to an end and so forth, was somehow obstruction of justice. It's simply not. I even commit, convinced Chris Cuomo you know who Chris Cuomo was? And I didn't convince him, the Supreme Court did, and it's a unanimous decision, Arthur Anderson versus the United States. So anyway, uh, what President Clinton did was not only defy a specific order, but he also was encouraging her to lie under oath. We're, not we're talking politics and power with President Trump.
with President Clinton, we're talking contempt for the rule of law. He said, well, that's awfully harsh. No, he was found in contempt, and thus the name of the book, by United States District Court Judge, and Bill Clinton is the only president, and thankfully, in our history, the entire history of the Republic, to have been found in contempt by a federal district court. And he did not appeal. He didn't move for reconsideration. He simply accepted the contempt judgment. That strikes me as totally different in terms of values of the rule of law. All right, so that was me and Ken Starr a couple weeks ago at the Reagan Library. And unfortunately, because it wasn't an actual interview, I had no opportunity to follow up. And uh, except in, in the column that I wrote for Mediate, which you can read at uh, freespeechbroadcasting.com. And if I had an opportunity to follow up, what I would have said is, Judge Starr, hold on a second. You're looking at this all wrong. I get that Trump has the legal right to fire the FBI director for basically any reason that he wants. That's not what I'm arguing about, being an impeachable offense. It's not the firing that's impeachable. It's what the firing proves about prior conversations that Trump had with his FBI director. Specifically, the two conversations which Comey has documented contemporaneously in great detail about you're going to go easy on Flynn, right? That's a paraphrase. And I need your personal loyalty. Now, at the time of those statements, and this is something that it's, it's, it's incredibly frustrating to me that people don't understand the timeline here and someone's mindset and why that's critical to understanding the context. Comey could not have known for sure at that time what Trump really meant. He had a suspicion, but he didn't know for sure. But then he gets fired for no apparent reason. And the next day, Trump tells Lester Holt it's because of the Russian investigation in contradiction to his own administration's cover story that it was actually about Hillary and that he was too tough on Hillary, which, of course, everyone knew immediately was just it was just flat out ridiculous. So th to me, the key here is that. The firing is not the impeachable offense. The firing puts those two conversations, which I equate to the Bill Clinton-Betty Curry conversation, in a completely different context. Here's the analogy I use. Let's say you're married to somebody, and you are suspicious that they're having an affair with a particular person, all right? In this case, the affair would be like uh, obstruction of justice in the in the Trump uh, Comey situation. But you're not sure. In other words, you're Comey and you think, "Gee, it certainly feels like the president is obstructing justice here by trying to intimidate me into not pursuing Mike Flynn." That's what it feels like, but I can't prove it. Much like if you're suspicious of an affair but you can't prove it, you might not get a divorce because you're like, "Well, I'm just going to go with this and give him the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to keep my eyes open. 
Well, then your spouse, who you are suspicious is having an affair with a particular person, divorces you and immediately starts going out with and gets married to the person you were suspicious they were having an affair with. Well, guess what that means? That means your original suspicions were true, right? So the, the divorce becomes incredible evidence that your original suspicions of the affair were accurate. Very similarly, the firing becomes incredibly strong evidence that your suspicions that Trump was trying to obstruct justice were accurate. Now, unfortunately, obviously, there's no possible way to get that concept into a quick follow-up question in front of several hundred pro-Trump people at the Reagan Library, so I didn't even bother to try. But you can check out my column where I try to make that argument as well as I can, again, at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And, and, and this is important. This could end up becoming critical. If, if everything we think is going to happen ends up occurring, which is very precarious, especially in this day and age, to, to presume that. But if Democrats take the House and they and Mueller comes back with a, uh, a, a strong case against Trump and impeachment begins, that's going to be a critical issue. And Starr is going to be a critical guy in all this. And I am very suspicious, unfortunately. I'm very skeptical and cynical that he's going to take a dive because he's now trying to appeal to Cult 45 with this book and with appearances on Fox News Channel. I wrote, a, I wrote several other columns in the last couple of weeks that I want you to check out. One is, and I'm not going to go into the detail during the podcast, but I urge you to check out the column that I wrote most recently which is what a fraud Trump is on the issue of illegal immigration and how he's actually harming the, the cause of the very border hawks he's appealing to and manipulating. I love the poorly educated. And as someone who lives here in Southern California, this hits very close to home, very literally. Not just because I live here, but because, uh, you know, for instance, my wife, who I reference in the column, who is not a Cult 45 member, uh, but who is against illegal immigration. I mean, she believes things that are just flat out false that she's, you know, crap. She's heard either on talk radio or Fox news channel. And it's, it, it's incredibly frustrating. And even when I try to correct her like this caravan, she's one of the caravan people. She, she thinks that this caravan thing is, is a huge danger. I'm, what? Seriously, we're going to pretend that these people who are hundreds of miles away from the border that we know are coming, that we see, that probably will not even make it here for quite a long time, and if they do, very few will be left, who are seeking asylum in this country, that, that, that somehow this is a, a major national crisis requiring the military to be set up at the border. It's, it is absurd. It is a fraud. It is a scam. It is a stunt. It is intended to scare people. And based upon my wife's reaction, it has worked because my wife is semi-rational. I mean, she's, she's a very good focus group person because her family is mostly Trump cult 45 members. So she has a strong strand of the virus, 
but I'm usually able to keep her under control, like, you know, with warm compresses and uh, some medication and whatever. Usually she's she's not a full uh, Trump Colt 45 member. Uh, but there's no question that, that some of this rhetoric has had an impact, at least on her. And if it's had an impact on her, it's had an impact on others. So check out my column uh, again at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I also wrote a column about the, the demise of Megyn Kelly, which uh, I, as a as a critic of Megyn Kelly on NBC, I've written numerous negative columns about her. Her show was terrible. It was poorly uh, designed for her. Uh, she was out of her element. But for her to end up effectively getting fired over asking a question about blackface for Halloween was absurd. And really, the death knell for any sort of semi-serious, and I underline semi-serious, talk show on network television, especially in the mornings, uh, because if you can't even ask a question like that when you're Megyn Kelly, you're a huge star, and, uh, and you get fired, I mean, despite a massive contract. Now, granted, the blackface thing had very little to do with it. Very little to do with it. This was a, a setup. They needed to get rid of her. Uh, it was a lot like Matt Lauer. I mean, obviously the allegation was very different, but I am convinced that Matt Lauer never did anything non-consensual and that, and I've talked about this in great detail about how and why I know this or, or strongly believe this to be the case, but I, NBC overpaid her and they made a mistake and they were looking to way uh, for a way to get out. While you know gaining some sort of moral high ground, plus she had pissed off a lot of people around her. She's apparently not a very nice person, or at least not likable. And I think she had also pissed off a lot of NBC people by going after Lauer. Because my in indications are, my understanding from people I still have contact with is that Lauer is pretty popular among the staff there. They think he got a raw deal, and she went after him for no apparent reason, very, fairly recently. Plus, she lost her Me Too card when she supported Brett Kavanaugh. Anyway, I wrote a, an extensive column about that, which you can, again, check out at uh, freespeechbroadcasting.com. Another situation that occurred that got a huge amount of news and now has suddenly gone quiet, which shows you about the short attention span of the pathetic uh, national news media, is the circumstances involving the, uh, the murder, the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the uh, Washington Post, I guess you'd call him contributor, a Saudi Arabian dissident, uh, who it certainly appears as if was purposely targeted, murdered, and dismembered by uh, the Saudi Arabian government while he was in Turkey at the, uh, the Saudi um, uh, consulate there in Turkey, all because he was trying to get... Uh, uh, I believe it was a marriage license to marry his, his fiance or something along those lines. And look, uh, there, there, nobody looks good in this whole thing. The Saudis look horrendous. Trump has been uh, all over the map and has really, I think, been once again exposed in a very similar fashion to the way he has been with Vladimir Putin as somebody who is willing to uh, put up with all sorts of nonsense if it's done by somebody he likes or the who who li who likes him uh, or who he has ties with. I mean, he, he will believe almost anything out of somebody's mouth who has said good things about him or who he believes he has a good relationship with. 
I mean, finally, Trump said that it's the worst cover-up of all time, but that was after 15 other statements saying that the, what the Saudis were saying was credible about Khashoggi's death. And the reality is he was targeted, he was murdered, he was dismembered, and it was a ridiculous cover-up. I mean, the cover-up was absurd. It was more absurd than OJ's uh, explanations for what he did. And yet Trump bought into them for quite a while. And now somehow the story has basically faded away. I'm sure the Saudis are laughing at us because, I mean, this this was horrendous. One of the more horrendous elements, by the way, was the Trump water carriers trying to say that because Khashoggi uh, was like uh, pro-Muslim brotherhood that somehow we shouldn't be supporting him or somehow his death doesn't matter or that the media only cared about him after he was killed and never cared enough about him beforehand. Well, what? what? Of course somebody, if they get murdered by a, by a government in a massive cover-up for no apparent reason, that's, of course, going to make their cause a lot more well-known, a lot more famous, and people are going to be drawn to it. That's, it's just nonsense. It's absurdity. And to me, it's the, another example of how Trumpism just corrupts everything. I mean, there are reasonable people who were attacking the victim here because they thought it was good for Trump. Now, one of the elements of this, and I wrote a column, again, freespeechbroadcasting.com, with some information you probably haven't heard elsewhere because this resonated with me because, once again, as we often joke on this podcast, there's the six degrees to John Ziegler element of the story. And yes, there is a six degrees of element, uh, element even in the Khashoggi story. And that's this, the, uh, one of the more bizarre coincidences of this whole, and I do believe it's a coincidence. One of the more bizarre coincidences of the Khashoggi story is that Khashoggi's uncle also named Khashoggi was a well-known nefarious, uh, infamous, arms dealer in Saudi Arabia. And he became somewhat known in this country back in the late 1980s because he sold his massive yacht to one Donald J. Trump. Now think about that. Think about this. Khashoggi's uncle. Now I realize that in that part of the world, family trees, you know, are, are pretty crazy. Not like white trash America. I mean, it's very difficult to keep track of, of all, but the, he's a legitimate uncle with the same last name. And he sold his yacht rather famously to Donald Trump in the late 80s. Well, the six degrees of John Ziegler part of the story, and it's actually, I guess, technically less than six degrees, is that the way that Trump was able to buy Khashoggi's yacht was because of a loan he got from the Boston company. The person who approved that loan begrudgingly was my father, Hans Ziegler. And my father has told me in great detail about the process that went he went through on this. In fact, they, I've asked him about it in an interview he did uh, on this podcast, uh, I believe last year, uh, or sometime in the last year, something like that. Regardless, um, he, he's not real comfortable talking about it publicly, but the reality is 
he didn't want to give Trump the money because he didn't like the conditions of the loan and he didn't think that Trump was going to be able to pay the money back because he didn't think Trump could actually afford the loan for the yacht. Unfortunately, my father's boss, a guy by the name of Jim Von Germanton, who turned out to be literally a crook, we didn't know it at the time, was so enamored with Trump's celebrity that he effectively forced my father to approve the, the loan anyway. So they gave Trump the money. He bought the yacht. My father was right. He could not really afford it, especially when things started going badly for Trump into the 1990s. And Trump ends up selling the yacht. And he sells the yacht to a Saudi Arabian prince. So the reality here is that Trump's ties to Saudi Arabia are at least as deep and as long as even the alleged ties that he has had to Russia and or Vladimir Putin. And that has absolutely is, has impacted his ability to respond to this situation, to the detriment of the United States and the way that we have handled this so far, because there needs to be punishment. Now, whether there will be or not, I don't know. A lot of it's going to depend on what happens on Tuesday in the elections. But I don't, and, and the other thing Trump, of course, does is he lies. He, just, he lies constantly. And he, he has lied consistently about the value of these military contracts that we have with Saudi Arabia. He's, he's claimed absurdly that there are tens of thousands of jobs that are on the line if we offend Saudi Arabia. Well, that's just false. It's not even close. It, it, apparently, it's like a few dozen at most. And, you know, that should not be dictating how we respond to this kind of an outrage if we're going to be the leader in the world on human rights issues. Another column that I wrote, uh, which <laughs> I urge you to check out, involves the Kanye West. This is how fast the world changes now. The Kanye West visit to the White House. Remember that? Remember when that was the biggest story of the day, if not the week in the United States? That happened between our last podcast and this podcast. That was only a few weeks ago. Since that time, Kanye West has, at least on Twitter, seemingly disavowed himself of all political connections, which would presumably also mean he's no longer a big Trump guy. But he was in the Oval Office, along with Jim Brown, NFL legend of all people, in literally embracing Donald Trump, waxing uh, poetic about all sorts of crazy things, about why he supports Donald Trump. And now that's already uh, in the rearview mirror because uh, he says that uh, he's had his eyes opened and that he has been duped. Uh, again, those that's a paraphrase, but it's a pretty close paraphrase. Well, the way I interpreted that was, oh, so Kim Kardashian finally decided this was a bad idea for her career and her brand, and she laid down the law. And that uh, Kanye uh, w has uh, basically been castrated uh, by his wife and uh, and now realizes that he cannot support uh, Trump publicly because it's bad for his wife's brand. I don't know that to be the case, but a lot of people have surmised that, and it does make a lot of sense. And it's particularly appropriate given the column that I wrote about this because one of the things that Kanye West said, you may recall I have talked about on this podcast before, 
as one of my theories about why it is that certain men are drawn to Donald Trump. And Kanye West basically articulated it. Or or articulated it. He 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 made it in a, you know, he said what I have been saying, to put it in a completely horribly, inartfully phrased uh uh communication. Boy, this was this let's rewind here. All right. So the point is that Kanye West has said effectively what I have been theorizing about Trump for a very long time, which is that for a lot of people, Trump is their surrogate testicles, that they feel castrated by society. Kanye, I believe, feels castrated by being part of the Kardashian family, which is effectively what happened to Bruce Jenner and a couple of other guys in that in that whole family. And this is part of why he is drawn to Trump. And I go into greater detail into this theory and how Kanye West's statement that day at the White House dovetailed almost 100% with what I have been trying to articulate with regard to my theory on Trump as the uh, surrogate testicles for men who feel as if they have been castrated in their own lives or by society or by both. Uh, finishing up on the review of all the columns that I've written for Mediate over the last several weeks since our last podcast, I wrote two, I think, pretty uh, interesting and certainly very extensive columns about the state of anti-Trump conservatives and conservatism. And in one of them, I actually even break down by name, which no one is ever willing to do because you might lose some friends, but since I have no friends and don't care about people, it doesn't matter to me, uh, I actually name names and break it down category by category as to where we are on the so-called never-Trump or anti-Trump conservative movement. It, it's pretty pathetic. It's really sad. Um, the only thing that can save it is a huge Democratic win on Tuesday, but I urge you to check those two columns out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. Last topic I'll, I want to talk about, which I did not write about, and it's, and the fact that I did not write about this is actually emblematic of the topic itself and the power of political correctness, even in realms of life where political correctness used to not matter and you would think would not matter because they're supposedly manly endeavors. And this actually kind of, relates to the whole Kanye West and Trump as surrogate testicles uh, theory. But I'm referring to what happened at the University of Maryland this week with their head football coach, DJ Durkin. Now, to review, back in the spring, during spring practices, the University of Maryland had a player named Jordan McNair who died as a result of heat stroke because of uh, what he endured at a football practice. Now he was taken to the hospital and he had a very high temperature and they were unable to save him and he died. It's a tragedy. Nobody wanted it to happen. Well, there was several investigations into this and the head football coach was put on leave. Now during the time period where he's put on leave, <laughs> an awful lot of time passed. And obviously the football season is mostly over at this point. And of course, living in this PC world and uh, university of Maryland is a liberal state run academic institution in a liberal state. And so bit by bit, drip by drip, there has been this anti 
Coach Durkin narrative that the media has latched hold of because I guess it's human nature. We want someone to blame for a tragedy. I get that. There's a tragedy. You want to blame somebody. But blaming the wrong person does not help a damn thing. And it certainly doesn't help a damn thing, not only when the the person who's innocent ends up getting punished, but they get, up, they get punished in a way that is actually going to harm the institution going forward in a pretty dramatic fashion. And I believe that's what's happened with Durkin at Maryland. So they did these investigations, and lo and behold, to the shock of nobody, certainly not me, they found, they found, guess what? Nothing specific that could target Durkin as having done something wrong to result in the death of Jordan McNair. Nothing. And here's how you know they did nothing. They found nothing. Not only do you never see anything specific, never, I dare you, Google every article about this case, you'll never see Coach Durkin or anyone even in his staff, maybe the, the trainer, I guess, the, he, you know, the person that was more directly involved. But let's just talk about Durkin. You'll never see any, any even allegation of he did X when he should have done Y. And that was wrong, and it helped cause McNair's death. You'll never see that. Instead, you get a bunch of bullshit about a toxic culture. Toxic culture. What the fuck does that mean? A toxic culture, a toxic football culture. The same thing happened at Penn State where, you know, the the football culture was what led to allegedly to Sandusky and why Paterno decided to cover up, which was ridiculous, and Sandusky wasn't even on the staff anymore. It doesn't make any fucking sense. The When you have no evidence, when you have no case, that's what you come up with. It was the culture. It was a toxic culture of of demeaning and harassing football players. What the fuck does is any has anybody who has ever gone through a football practice understand what happens? I mean, so being told what to do or being told that you're not doing it properly or that you're not working hard enough or being urged to get up off the ground and keep going. That's, I guess, toxic. That's demeaning. That's harassment now. I guess. So if it is, if it is, then we might as well stop football right now because it's over. It's totally over. So none of these investigations found shit. One of them actually was uh, effectively esculpatory towards Durkin, even with regard to the culture part. And so... The Maryland Board of Trustees, they basically have this power struggle, and this week they reinstated Durkin. Now, I was surprised by that because I figured Durkin's got nothing going for him because he's been out of the job now for, like, effectively most of the season. And he's not famous. He doesn't have this great track record. He has very little leverage. And all he's got going for him is that he's probably innocent as hell of the actual allegation of having anything to do with McNair's death. And unfortunately, that doesn't matter much anymore, if at all. And much to my surprise, the Board of Regents, or trustees, whatever they call it there in Maryland, decides he's going to be reinstated. And it's the president of the university who's going to end up resigning because apparently the president wanted him fired, but the board overruled it. Well, there's then a cascade 
of virtue signaling bullshit that comes down on Twitter and Facebook and in the media and specifically on ESPN because there's nothing that sports, liberal sports media people hate more than for them to buy into a narrative because it's, you know, it's liberal, it's PC, it allows them the virtue signal and then have that narrative to be false and then for them not to get their way. Nobody's more butthurt than ESPN when they decide that they know what the truth is and this is what ought to happen and it doesn't work out that way. So then they double or triple down. Oh, this is outrageous. This guy's being reinstated, but a man died. A man died. Well, where were you? And I used to be the biggest Notre Dame fan on the planet. I mean, and when I was a kid, Notre Dame football was my life. Where were you when Brian Kelly, the current coach at Notre Dame, put a student up in a tower in a windstorm to videotape a practice and that tower fell over and the kid died? Where were you then, ESPN? What, 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 what the hell? Now, there you can actually draw a direct line between something that Kelly was involved with and a death. Yet, Kelly wasn't suspended. He wasn't put on leave. There was no nothing I'm aware of, any kind of real repercussions against him. And he's probably going to be coaching in the, in the college football playoffs this year. The media never mentions that. Why? Well, because that's Notre Dame. And at that time, going after Notre Dame was a little bit different. And ESPN had a different mentality, apparently, then. But now ESPN on anything. I mean, let's, let's be clear. Part of the factor, there's a lot of factors here, but let's be clear, no one will ever say this, except maybe John Ziegler on a podcast, but the fact that Jordan McNair is black played a key role in this because then that's somehow a racial issue. And that, that you know, that's like greases the skids of the, the liberal PC virtue signaling machine if you're standing up for a black guy who, got, uh, who died because of heat stroke as opposed to if this happened to be a white guy. If this was a white guy, I don't think anyone would have cared. By the way, the kid who died at Notre Dame was a white kid. So I, I, it doesn't prove it, but I, I think that it's rational to, to suggest that that was a factor in why the media jumped all over this. So, so after this shit fit that the media has because they didn't get their way, Within 24 hours, then Durkin gets fired after being reinstated. And I love the explanation. It's not that he did anything wrong, necessarily. This is what I, I'm, I'm when I'm you know I'm seeing hearing on Twitter and in the media, but that he had lost the team because the team was were, and and the school was protesting against him. Well, no shit, Sherlock. These are 19, 20-year-old kids who are being manipulated by the news media for several months being told that it was the toxic bullshit culture that caused this guy to die. No, it wasn't. He got heat stroke and bad things happened and he died. It's a tragedy. Do you really, does anybody really think that the coach wanted McNair to die or wanted McNair's life to be in danger? Does anybody really believe that? Come on. Use your fucking brains. It's just flat out ridiculous. 
There was no intent. And here's what the reality is. Let me tell you what the reality is, because this is the way liberals always, I, I, I hesitate to word, use the word think, because they're not thinking. They're, liberals, whenever they virtue signal, and whenever they do think something that feels right, or, gee, this is, it feels like justice for Jordan McNair. No, it's not. It's going to cause a huge problem going forward. The law of unintended consequences is going to be front and center right here. And this always happens with liberal thinking. They think that everything happens in a vacuum. They don't think that there's any repercussions for anything that they do. And the repercussions here are potentially massive because put yourself now in the position of any football coach, especially at the college level or at the high school level. And by the way, unfortunately, people, kids die in practice at football. I don't know what the exact number is, but it's numerous times a year. Now, is, should, should we be more careful about heat stroke and hydration? and absolutely. But here's the reality now, because I've coached football at the high school level, at the varsity level, and I've written a book about a high school football team in Steubenville, Ohio, and I, I know how this is going to work. I've seen it firsthand. Now, all of a sudden, and when a kid is sweating and struggling and he's out of shape and he's trying to get through what used to be two a days, but they basically have kind of they've, they've gotten rid of two a days because because that was too difficult, uh, even at the pro level. But when when the kid is struggling, trying to get in shape for an arduous football season, and the kid wants out, the reaction used to be suck it up, get going, you got to finish this right. Now, the reaction will absolutely have to be, even at the highest levels of football, okay, sit down, get some water, take a break. Do you need to see the trainer? Do we need to go to the hospital? And by the way, you think, well, John, okay, that's not that big of a deal. Absolutely, it's a big deal. Because guess who's going to figure this out real fast? The players. The players are going to figure this out immediately. And th- now the coaches will have no recourses. None. What, what, what kind of recourse does a college coach now have or a high school coach have to get a player to get themselves in shape? None. I mean, you could, you could take away playing time, but, if, but a kid like that probably doesn't care that much. If, if, if you got a problem, if, 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 if I'm presuming, I'm not talking about McNair here. I'm talking about you're presuming my scenario, which is the kid who is not in great shape and he's kind of lazy and he doesn't want to go through all the workouts. So he he knows he knows what the the magic words are. I feel like I got heat stroke or you know whatever it is. Well, now that a college football coach can be fired after being reinstated, after an investigation found that he was not culpable, then anybody can be fired. And, and that's a, a human reality. You're oh, Especially these gigs. These gigs are incredibly lucrative and incredibly rare. DJ Durkin's never going to get another major college coaching job. Ever. Barring, you know, at least not for a very, very, very long time. He's going to have to go back to the 
to the bottom of the totem pole and work himself back up. So you're always going to do what is going to maintain the gig, especially when the gig is that cushy and lucrative and difficult to, to get. So this is gonna, there's going to be a break. If you think about it from a military standpoint, there's going to be a total breakdown in command and control in the, in the esprit de corps. It's all going to break down. Now, is it going to break down immediately? No, because a lot of this is built into everyone's DNA. But I'm telling you, and I've seen it at the high school levels. Um, the last time I coached high school, and granted, it was at a, a very soft, highfalutin uh uh, private school in Palos Verdes, California, where Josh Rosen ends up being my quarterback of the eighth grade team, ends up being a UCLA star and a first-round draft pick for the Arizona Cardinals, which had nothing to do with me, but uh, just a fluke of life. The reality is I saw it firsthand that even though – and it begins, you know, even though Southern California is soft as can be, especially in Palos Verdes, it's going to expand throughout the rest of the country. And we're seeing, by the way, in the way in the rules of the game. My God, these targeting rules are just re- absurd, and their implementation is idiotic and asinine and inconsistent. Look, nobody wants people to be injured. Nobody wants people to die. That's obvious. And we should, but in, invariably, the pendulum swings too far in the other direction, especially once it becomes politically incorrect to even accept a reality that guess what bad things occasionally happen and it's nobody's fault and you don't make things better by destroying somebody's life just to make just so you feel better about it because you feel like you did something you didn't do shit except make it impossible to coach football now so the 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 game of football and this again everything always goes back to trump it's amazing to me that we have the most politically incorrect president that we ever are going to have. A guy who loves football, apparently. And yet, we're going to see the destruction of football under his watch, partially because of him, because he's going after the NFL on this national anthem thing, all because of his own vendetta against them, because of his experience with the USFL. This is, so it's classic Trump. The, the reality is the result is exactly the opposite of what you would think it would be. So it just it just it's very frustrating to be able to to look at it and see that one of the great sports we have is going to be totally destroyed. Yes, improvements need to be made in various elements, but invariably, once it gets into the realm of political correctness, and it's the decision makers are liberal academics. Look out, because there's no stopping it. And I don't know where it ends, but you know what it's going to look like? It's going to look like touch football or flag football. That's what it's going to be. That's that's the only thing we're going to have going forward. So enjoy it while you still have it. So enjoy your enjoy your NFL Sunday while it still has some semblance of being an NFL Sunday. We will do another uh, podcast on Saturday coming up to review – the midterm elections, and we will be joined by uh, Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth, my good friend from Louisville, who will either be one incredibly disappointed uh, guy who I will be very pissed off with, or he's going to be uh, about to become the uh, the chairman of the Budget Committee in the next uh, House of Representatives. So make sure you uh, mark your calendars for that. And until then, uh, make sure you do 
one of or both, if you can, uh, two things I ask of you. Number one, share this uh, podcast via uh, word of mouth or social media, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. I will be happy to share it if you tag me. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps, when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.